Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Bill Campbell. Dr. Campbell received his PhD in Exercise, Nutrition and Preventative Health at Baylor University and is currently a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, where he is also the director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory, one of the coolest sounding lab names ever. Uh, on top of that, Dr. Campbell is also a fellow and previous president of the International Society of Supports Nutrition. Dr. Campbell's research is focused on helping people to optimize their physiques with a maintainable lifestyle, and it's the maintainable part that I really want to stress today. Uh, Dr. Campbell's work obviously encompasses strategies for rapid fat loss, and we talk about that, but it's his research into making fat loss more sustainable that I find really fascinating. Uh, in particular, we talk about diet breaks and periodized dieting and how it can lead to better fat loss results in the long term. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I learned a load. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come on and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. So onto this conversation with Dr. Campbell. Let's talk science. Dr. Campbell, how are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very, very much for uh, joining me tonight. I'm very, very excited to, and honored to be speaking with you. Just to, to start this whole thing off, just for anybody who, who might not be aware of who you are, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are, your background, and, and what, you, what you do right now, please? Sure. Yeah, so I'm a professor at the University of South Florida. That's where I'm at now. But I um, started my career off as a basically in sales. I used to sell herbicides and pesticides, so bug killer and weed killer, and Needless to say, that wasn't very exciting to me. So I decided to make a career change in my late 20s. So I went back to school. I went to Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where I got a master's in exercise physiology and then a PhD in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. After that, uh, my wife requested that we live somewhere warm. So I said, well, I'll apply to jobs in Florida and Texas. So that's what I did, and I was very fortunate to get an offer from the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida. And we've been now, I've been in that job, uh, I think this is my 13th year, and I manage the, uh, our direct, the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. Um, I, I, I've got to say, okay, one, one that's a, a very, very interesting career change um, from, from selling uh, pesticides or herbicides to, to physique change. Um, <laughs> but I, I have to ask, what was it that got you into physique? Obviously, you know, that, that, that's a major change. But, you know, what was it that made you say, okay, look, I want to work uh, in this area of research. I want to see what, what's, what's the best way to, to help people with their body composition goals. So I loved bodybuilding when I was younger, loved it. So that was really my passion, but I was, I, I was not a good student in my, um, with my marketing degree. My GPA was like, uh, like it was bad. It was uh, 2.49. I joke with my students now 
with my GPA that I had in business, I wouldn't have gotten into our program as an exercise science with the grades. Um, and I guess that was an indication that I just didn't, I wasn't really passionate about killing bugs and weeds <laughs> or, or marketing in general. So I, I decided, and I was, like I said, I was relatively young. Of course, I felt old. I wasn't married. And I said, I, I think I need to do something that I'm excited about. So fortunately, I never had a class in science. So my GPA was a clean slate with the sciences, fortunately. And I just took, you know, part-time here, part-time there, got a class here, got a class there. Then I made the jump to go full-time. I got married right around the time I went back to get my master's degree. So I was very blessed that my wife was able to support me financially. So that made it, you know, easy at that point. Um, but yeah, I would say that it was, I've always been interested in bodybuilding. I've always loved, and my real passion at the time was sports nutrition. I love supplements and diets and all of that. So and that that's kind of the why I transitioned into this. Okay, so you, you basically wanted to go from, from something that you weren't particularly passionate about, which I, I don't understand really, because, you know, it, it does sound fascinating, the whole world of, um, you know, bug killer and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> I, I, so you just decided that you wanted to pursue your passion and, and work in that. And like, you know, just, just to kind of offer my own thoughts on that, I, I think there is nothing better because I, I kind of started out in a slightly different field, still in sciences, and I went a very, very long way around before I got back into nutritional sciences. Um, and it's a decision I, I have never regretted, and I'm, I'm glad I've made that decision um, you know, every day of my life because I think, yeah, when you're, when you're doing something you're passionate about, it doesn't really feel like work. Um, so... Uh, just right. um, you also mentioned the name of your lab, and I have to say it's probably the coolest sounding lab name I've I've ever heard. Could you tell us a little bit about it again, the name and, and what what you what you guys do there? Yeah, so the short name is the Physique Lab because that's really what we focus on. But the long name is the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. So we have two focuses. One is on uh, exercise performance, and that's really on one side of the spectrum on the resistance power strength side. So a few years ago, we did a few powerlifting studies. We've done some sports nutrition studies with different supplements to see, can we increase strength? Can we increase power production, muscular endurance? And then the other main focus of the lab is the physique side of the lab, which is really where, where we're focused now. And that is what it sounds like. We're trying to build as much muscle as we can on people and trying to also reduce fat loss in people. And the, the way that we're going about that is through diets and resistance exercise. So we're combining those two things and trying to come up with the best synergism between your diet and your exercise program to give somebody the best physique. So, so when it comes to, let's say, probably one of the most Googled questions, you know, on earth, what do I do to build muscle and lose fat? Your lab is where the actual research is, is happening. And you guys are, are looking into the real nitty gritty of how that happens and, and, and how you can improve that. Is that right? That's right. But, and I would also add this. My philosophy is to, to optimize physique within a maintainable lifestyle. So what that means is 
let's use bodybuilders as an example. I love bodybuilders. I learn a lot from them, but not everybody's going to be able to do what a bodybuilder does. So I learn from them and I figure out and we research, well, what's, what are the things that we need to do to improve your physique? And it may be that you could do X, Y, and Z, but if that's so unattainable for most people, or if 98% of the population can't do that, that's of no interest to me. So the, the stuff that I research is more, again, it's within a maintainable lifestyle. So can you optimize your physique while still having a life? That's, that's kind of, I think, which makes me even different than other bodybuilding researchers. Um, I, I think that's a really good approach to start to use because when we, when we think about bodybuilders, I think one thing that sets a bodybuilder or let's say a successful bodybuilder apart from the rest of the population is an incredible reserve of drive and motivation that can get them through you know, their prep and get them through a, a long dieting phase more so than you know, most people could ever imagine. Um, but not everybody's got that, you know, that, that metal, that, that, that ability to, to kind of hold out that long. So I think it's fantastic that there, there are labs that are looking at ways of doing this sustainably and kind of long term. And that's something that I really, really want to get into um, uh, in, in today's conversation. But before we do that, there, there's one thing that you, you didn't mention. And I think you're just being a little bit modest. Um, I, I understand you, you were also president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um... I think it was 2014 to 2017, I served as the president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, or the ISSN. And since my term has been finished with that organization, I've now transitioned into a role where I help manage all of our position stands, which a lot of people are familiar with them. They're very popular uh, scientific reviews of what I would say, once again, are, are relevant topics. So that, that's, that's my current role with that organization. Absolutely. And just for anybody who's, who's not familiar and anybody who is particularly interested in, let's say, the scientific backing behind a lot of nutrition recommendations, I can't recommend the ISSN um, position stands enough. If, I think for, for most people, if, if you're interested in looking at a, a topic, be it a supplement or be it a, a specific product on the market, the, the, the position stands are just a fantastic way to get a very, very, well, a relatively concise, and I'm saying that in inverted commas, um, uh, overview of what the, scientific, the body of scientific research says. So they're a really, really great resource for people out there. So it's fantastic that the ISSN is, is providing those. So um, the fact that you're in charge of those, is, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. And I'll add, we, we just had enough, we just started an agreement to write a position stand on ketogenic diets. So that, that should be done within the next year. And we're very excited about making that announcement. That is very interesting. Um, I will be very much looking forward to, to reading that as well. Um, are you able to say uh, who, who you'll be collaborating with uh, on that or is it a bit so early? Yeah, so um, Dr. Kathy Science from Jacksonville University, she is going to be the project leader, the, the primary writer of that, and she currently is assembling a team to help her with that. Fantastic. So, yes, yeah, and what I do is I'm more on the editorial side of it, so I don't, um, at times I help with the writing, but um, if I have, I've not done research on ketogenic diets, so I'm more on the editorial side. So one of the roles that I do is, 
uh, with every reference that the that the writing team makes, I go in and make sure, and I do this with my students, uh, my, my, my graduate students, we go in and make sure that that reference is a valid reference to support the statement that's being made. Because I've read too many papers where it looks like it's very sciencey, and that reference has nothing to do or is even not even supporting the statement being made. And that's, that's always been a pet peeve of mine. So can, can, can I, can I ask you, could you do that for every scientific paper that's out there, please? <laughs> because I can't tell you how frustrating that is. You see a really, really interesting, you know, reference and you're like, wow, I'm going to check that out. And you read the papers like, nope, they, they, they didn't mention this at all. <laughs> yeah. How are people getting away with this? It's, oh my God. I don't envy you. That is not a very forgiving job. That is, and tedious is, is the word that comes to mind. But um, yeah. Yeah. We, we appreciate people being able to do that. Uh, <clears throat> one thing that I really want to get into today, and like I'm sure a lot of people want to, to, to point out about today, is we, we're going to speak a lot about, um, about weight loss. But I think more accurately, we're going to speak about fat loss. And... I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the difference in those two concepts, because for a lot of people we're, we're talking about, you know, they might not see the, the particular difference between the two, but what's the difference between, you know, uh, researching, looking at weight, research, looking at weight loss, research, looking at fat loss. And why, why is that difference important? Yeah. So just the name of my lab, because it's called the physique lab, that implies something that's greater or more specific than weight loss. Now we study weight loss, but what we really care about is fat loss. So giving the, and, and I guess it's also important to note that my research is not focused on obesity. I don't, I don't deal with obese individuals. Now I did do that as a graduate student. We did um, multiple studies in overweight and obese females. So I have that background. But my research, and it's important to define the audience that I cater to, it's more or less a, a, an audience that is more, that is already fit, that's looking to get leaner. So that doesn't mean that the things that we research don't apply to an obese individual. They, they almost certainly do. But we are really heavily um, invested in the resistance exercise component, the protein content. So there, I, I just want to make sure that my audience is clear in terms of where our focus is. Now, when it comes to how do we apply a difference of weight loss for fat loss? Well, most obesity or overweight studies literally just focus on weight loss. There's really not much of a care on the composition of, of that weight. Whereas we will never do a weight loss study without asking the question, where is this weight that's lost? Where is it coming from? Is it coming from muscle or is it coming from fat? And obviously our goal is to do everything we can to maintain the muscle and to do everything we can to target fat loss. So what I, part of what I need to do is educate people when you use the scale, because not everybody can get a body composition assessment every week. And I, you shouldn't do it every week. Um, I recommend about once a month. So I'm not saying you should avoid the scale. All's my, all's the, the point that I would make is you've got to be more patient because we're, if you're going to follow the research of, of what our lab supports based on the research, you're going to maintain your muscle mass and that's not going to show up on the scale. 
So you may be changing your body, but you're, that number on the scale is not changing much. But your clothes are fitting better. You look better in, in a bikini or with your shirt off if you're a guy. So, but it's, it's, it will be a never ending education for me and my students and all of those other evidence-based physique minded people to say the scale. Yes, we embrace the scale to see if what we're doing is working, but you're going to have to take a patient approach because it's not the same as just lost, losing weight. I, I think that that's a really, really relevant point that you're, you're making there. And, you know, the fact that you, you differentiated between the fact that, you know, working with, let's say people who have obesity, there's a big difference there because I think for a lot of individuals, you know, when we talk about obesity, there there are certain health conditions that might be associated with it. We know that, you know, even losing 5% or 10% of body weight can have huge improvements on, on those metabolic parameters that we're talking about. But we're look, in, in those situations, we're looking at just weight loss and that could be anything. It could be muscle. Obviously, if somebody's particularly... Uh, has a, a lot of obesity, they're, they're going to lose a lot of fat as well. But if you're talking about people who are closer to, you know, having very, very low amounts of body fat and people who want to eke out that those last few, let's say, kind of get down a few more percentage points of body fat um, and look as good as possible. I think that's where, you know, weight as a metric uh, starts to lose some of its usefulness. Like, like you said, it's, it's not something we will we will um, ever kind of move away from using. It's definitely a, a valuable metric. But I think at the end of the day, um, again, with the term physique, people want to look better, be it on stage or be it at the beach. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really, uh, you know, a, a nice way of kind of um, kind of distinguishing between those, those two different uh, approaches. Um, yeah. One of, one of the... the the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you um, was I noticed on your own Instagram that a few months back you were running a, um, I suppose for want of a better word, a competition um, with your own students. Actually, before I even ask this question, um, how many students uh, do you have at your lab? How many people are you teaching? So in our graduate program, which is the bulk of my research team, and when I, it's a master's program, so I don't have doctoral students. We accept about 30 new students every fall, wow. and I would say about 10 of them are on my research team every year. So I look to fill 10 new spots every year. So that means I have 10 of this year. I have 10 from last year. I have some other people, some interns sometimes, some undergraduates. So my research team is large. It's, it's about 25 students. And... It's, it's a, lot of, uh, a lot of hungry mouths to feed because over the years, they've, I'm attracting just un like the, the amount of talent that, that is coming to, to my university and, and, and studying, it's very intimidating. Like, I, just, I wish I was as smart as some of them or could write as well. Or, it's, it's, it's humbling. So, but it, it's, it says a lot for the kind of research that you're putting out and the kind of research that you're doing at the physique lab that, you know, you've got this influx, influx of people who are coming to work with you. Um, 25 people is a lot of, of people to have on board and a lot of people to manage. So, um, you know, my, my respect to you on that. So this competition that you, you ran with your students, um, I, I loved it. And I'd love it if you could just tell uh, everybody who's listening a little bit about the competition and how it was structured and everything, please. Yeah, so 
even before I get into the details, the, the reason that I even had the idea of running a competition was I have all of these students and I am in, in desperate need to create leadership opportunities for them. So my old model was Dr. Campbell does everything. I design the study. I help recruit the students. I do the writing. And I realized the, the students that I had volunteering with me, and, and that's another important part, none of these students are getting paid to help. It's all, it's 100% volunteer. So they're, they're volunteering 10, 15, 20 hours per week sometimes just doing this research. So I realized I've got to change my approach because I'm not sleeping. <laughs> Two, I'm not giving my students learning opportunities and I'm not creating leaders. So I, I had to, you know, start discovering ways to, to change things. So um, I said, all right, well, if I have a competition I have two teams. They each design their study. Well, that's great. That's better than I used to do because I used to design the studies with minimal input. Now, and I, and I, I kept myself out of all of the planning completely. I had my research coordinator, Mad Madeline Siedler. She managed both teams. Like she made sure that, you know, that she handled all, all of the work that I would have typically done because I wanted to be impartial. And I, I actually didn't judge, but I, I wanted to be surprised. And so that was the, the, the reason why this competition idea came out. And I asked for, okay, who wants to be the leader? So I had four people say they would like to lead this. So I had two teams. Each team had two co-leaders. And then we, um, they got to pick their team. So that each team had about 12 to 13 people on it. And their job was to design a study that I did put parameters on. So I, put, I think I put three different restrictions. I said, the study has to be a rapid fat loss study. It has to include females. Now, whether that means all females or males and females, I didn't care, but it has to have females. And the other one was that it had to be short because right? we had to finish this in a semester. At least that was the idea. So a rapid fat loss study that included females and a really short duration. And I'll explain in a little bit why it needed to be short, not just because I wanted to finish it in a semester, but philosophically, rapid, rapid fat loss, as that stands alone, is against my philosophy. But when it's put in context, it makes sense on why we why we did this. Okay, so you got all of your students together. You got two teams. You were going to do this rapid fat loss study. Um, one question I want to ask: Was it difficult for you to not be involved in the design of the projects? Because I know for like, if I had previously always been involved in the design, handing over the reins like that, was it easy for you? It was easy because of my research coordinator. Okay. So Madeline Siegler, who, who will be graduating, and by the way, she's going to be going to Texas Tech University to study with Grant Tensley, and he would be another great interview for you. He does um, similar types of research than I do, some um, time-restricted feeding types of stuff. So knowing that I had her, I com it was easy. Now, five years ago, when I didn't I didn't have the, the leadership in my lab because I wasn't developing it. I had great students five years ago, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't good at bringing out this, 
their skills, essentially, it would have been much, well, I didn't do it then. So now I'm at the point where, yes, I've got such good students that it, it was not hard for me. Now, I was prepared to completely let this whole thing crash and burn. I was like, if this fails miserably, that's all right. It wasn't a funded study. So I didn't have a contract that I put my name on that we had, you know, that things had to happen a certain way. So it wasn't funded. And I was even happy with the, ex to, with the thought process. If it fails, that's a great learning experience. Who, I mean, it would have been a waste of time for a lot of people um, in the sense of we don't get a publication or abstracts out of it. But the lessons that would have been learned would have been highly valuable. Now, the reality is the, the, the way that it turned out, and we'll get into the details a little bit, it was it was awesome. It was a great, perfect, not perfect, but a greatly designed study. They executed unbelievably well. Um, and we would be done with that study had it not been for the, for the coronavirus right now. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that was the idea behind it. Well, unfortunately, Corona is uh, throwing a major spanner into um, a lot of research work at the moment. But look, it's a national level emergency. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this the best way we can. So you had two, two teams, two research studies. I was wondering if you could just give us a little kind of an overview of what each of the studies um, that the, the teams came up with, what, what the studies were. Yes. Yeah. And let me also give credit to my team leaders. Um, Adam Ibrahim and Tracy Smith were the team leaders of one and um, Alex Brooks and Jack Quint were my leaders on the other. And um, three of those are master students in my program. So one of the teams designed a, well, let me say this. Both, both groups focused on a two-week rapid fat loss. I think that was one of the other parameters. When I said short, I said no more than two weeks. And let me, let me tell you, before I tell you the two different stories, let me explain why only two weeks. So I am philosophically opposed to the idea of anything rapid with weight loss or fat loss. I think that creates a lot of issues for one's metabolism, their physiology. They lose more muscle mass. So I do not advocate for any type of crash diet or anything that's very quick. So then why did we design a study called the rapid fat loss study? So that only makes sense when you put it in context of diet breaks. So a diet break is a study or a philosophy where you're going to diet for, I don't know, two months, three months, six months, however long a typical diet lasts. But during that period of time, you take breaks from the diet, typically one or two weeks where you're not dieting. So, and, the, and we have some research, not all the research supports this, but some of the research suggests that diet breaks will help preserve muscle mass. They will help preserve metabolic rate and actually even result in greater fat loss when controlled for the same amount of weeks in dieting. So we designed a rapid fat loss study because of with, with the mindset that this will only be undertaken by people for a two-week period. This is not meant to be done for a month or six weeks or three months. Because what I want to do, what, what I will continue to do is research when you're on a diet. We want to go in and we, I mean, essentially want to kill it. We want to take off as much fat off of the human body in a short period of time and then get out of the diet. 
go back to your life because one that's maintainable that's a you can maintain that type of, of lifestyle and what we're trying to do is how aggressive can we be while still maintaining muscle mass and still maintaining your metabolic rate so there's the philosophy of the rapid fat loss if somebody says oh i'm going to do rapid fat loss for a month that has all kinds of red flags i i, I don't like any of that so now knowing what the, where this fits in philosophically um, do you want me to go into the two teams now, or did you have a question about just the the philosophy? So I I, I think it's a fantastic philosophy to have because uh, one we we're, we're we're very very much in a society these days where everything is I want it now, um, and people are very very impatient when it comes to goals. But I, it's really really nice to hear kind of an outstanding researcher such as yourself speaking about the importance of the sustainability of a diet because I think. It's very, very easy for people to think, I'll just go hard and I'll do this, you know, crash diet for, you know, a month, two months, and then I'll be fine. And it doesn't work out that way. And like, you know, you mentioned a couple of the reasons there. You mentioned like, you know, problems with metabolism. You, uh, you mentioned uh, loss of muscle mass, mass, which can be an issue as well. And then there's also the issue of um, just people's willpower. And, you know, there, there's... You know, if, if we really want to do it, that'd be, you know, the risk of binge eat, eating and people kind of overeating, overeating and overcompensating, gaining weight back again. Um, so it's, it's, it's nice that you put it into that context of you've got a two week period, go hard and then return to some level of, of normality. Um, just to give people a bit of an idea of what a, a diet break uh, looks like, what, what, what does that entail? So we're, we're actually, we just finished a diet break study in female, resistance trained females, and we're currently getting the data analyzed for that now. Um, so one of your prior guests, uh, guests, Dr. Eric Trexler, he is my lab's data analyst. So now I send him my data and he, cause he's such a phenom with, with statistics. So we finished that study in the fall of, of 2019, and he's about a week away from giving us his statistical analysis of that. So I'll just explain what we did in that study, because I think that's appropriately defines what, what a diet break is. So in that study, we had two groups of resistance trained females. They both went on a diet for six weeks, and that diet looked like it was a 25% restriction in calories. And when I say a restriction, it was 25% lower than their maintenance levels. So we spent two weeks at the beginning of the study figuring out what are their maintenance levels. And I define that as the number of calories that you're ingesting where you don't gain weight or lose weight. So we spend two weeks getting those numbers dialed in. Then we had one group, let's call it the continuous group. We reduced their calories by 25% for six weeks. There was never a break. They just dieted week after week for six weeks. Now they resistance trained um, three days per week in my lab. We supervise all of that. We kept their protein relatively high, 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. And then the other group, the diet break group, they also dieted for six weeks total, but they didn't do it all in a row. They dieted for two weeks. Then they took a break for a week. So they had a week off we'll call that their diet break. They went back to their maintenance calories for an entire week. So they stopped dieting. Then they dieted for two more weeks. Then they took a second diet break. 
And then they finished with the last two weeks of dieting. So both groups dieted for six weeks. And the theory behind the diet breaks is when you take a break, we, th we think, and based on the Matador study would be one example, what, um, and again, not all of the studies show a, a, a benefit like the Matador study, but the Matador study showed essentially that if you take breaks, you, when you go back on your diet, you actually lose more weight or more fat when you go back on the diet. It makes your body more efficient at losing fat. And what we wanted to do in addition to that, because these weren't obese females, these were our typical already in shape females, that does taking a break help them maintain their muscle mass better? Um, is it worse for them? So that's, that, there's the context of what a diet break is. And it doesn't mean going, you know, eating whatever you want. They still had to monitor their food intake such that they didn't, we didn't want them to gain weight, but they may have over the course of their week off. Okay. When it comes to, let's say, the structure of the, the diet break, obviously calories will come back up. Did you put any, let's say, uh, did you give any macronutrient guidelines for people while they were on their diet break? Did they did this change significantly from the, their, their diet uh, macronutrient split? Yeah, so we, we had them maintain 1.8 grams per kg, which that may have been different than what they were doing during their maintenance period. And in fact, I'm sure it was. Most people don't eat that much protein. Now, bodybuilders do. But remember, I'm not working with bodybuilders. I'm working with people who want to look their best within a maintainable lifestyle. So let's say that their maintenance calories were 2,000 calories. Then we reduced their calories to 1,500 calories. When, when we made that reduction, we said you have to eat this much protein, 1.8 grams per kg of their, of their baseline body weight. And then with the rest of the calories, we said, I don't care. Whether you eat carbs or fat, it doesn't matter. Just make sure you don't go over 1,500. So there's another strategy that I think is important. Some people prefer carbs. Some people prefer higher fatty foods. I want to work with you on your preferences. So my wife, as an example, she loves carbs. She, she likes birthday cake uh, sweets. I tend to like that, but I also like bacon and sausage. So I, I, I like fatty foods more. So within this diet or even going back to maintenance, yes, you have to hit this protein, but choose the foods that you would normally choose to fill the rest of your caloric availability. And so it's, we embrace a flexible dieting approach with, with our diets. That's a really, really nice kind of pragmatic way of doing that kind of study. Just to, to you're, you're working with people as much as possible to, to make it as easy for them to, to kind of stick to your protocol, which I think is fantastic. Um, how, how, so I know you obviously haven't had the data analyzed yet, but do you have any preliminary results that you might be able to tell us a little bit about? No, I, I, I wish I did, but I have not even looked at the data yet. Um, I mean, I, I look at it like this. It's going to come out one of three ways. It's got, we're going to find that the diet break group is actually worse. Taking these breaks caused them to lose less fat than the other group. So that would be interesting because in obese males, it was better. But maybe in resistance trained females, taking breaks isn't good. The other alternative is, again, I think there's three outcomes. The, the other alternative is the diet break is better. They lost more fat or they retained more muscle. And then the third one is there's no difference. So to me, if there's no difference, 
I, I still think that's a win for a diet break because what if you're going on vacation? What if you have a birthday party? What if you are traveling for work? Well, plan that for a diet, for a diet break week, and then you're adhering to your plan. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very curious to see. Now, again, this was only six weeks of dieting, but you also have to appreciate these people weren't overweight to start. So there's no point in making these people diet for 12 or, or mm -hmm. 16, 20 weeks because they don't have a, you know, relatively, they don't have a lot of fat to lose. So, yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, I'm actually going to look at the data before uh, Dr. Trexler sends it back to us just, just so I can have an opinion on it. And then I'm going to analyze it myself. But right now I can't even get into my office to access my statistical software. <laughs> No, it, it, it's definitely something that, that is very, very fascinating. And, and I think in, if, if we look at, uh, let's say, physique um, science in, in two different lights, we have obviously got the uh, exercise side of things, we've got the nutrition side of things. If we look at the exercise side of things, we talk about periodization in, in strength training and in resistance training a lot, you know, where people go through different phases of like, you know, higher intensity, lower intensity, higher volume, lower volume. And that, that, that seems perfectly normal, um, almost every, an everyday concept now. But when it comes to diets, it's almost like, you know, that idea of periodization within a diet doesn't seem to exist yet. And this kind of research could really um, just open that up as a, as a new field of research. It's, it's, it's absolutely um, fascinating. Another question I have to ask is, so uh, I, I know from looking at a lot of your papers, a lot of your studies are in uh, resistance-trained um, like non-obese uh, women. And I was just wondering, is that something that is in, you know, an unlimited supply in, Cal in, sorry, in Florida? Or where are you getting all of your research subjects? So, yeah, all from my university, or at least in the surrounding area. Um, and I target females. So a lot of our studies are only for females. And the reason I, I do that is... They're much more compliant than males. They're, they're at, when you look at an 18 to 22 year old male or female, and, and this is a dig at you and me, males are immature. They, they have more ego in the weight room. They are not good about tracking their macros or handing in diet records. So everything about a female at that age, they're more mature, they're more compliant. And the reality is there's very little research in females. So I'm actually, by default, pioneering exercise science research by focusing on females. Because as you know, 90% 90, 90 of the literature in resistance exercise is in males. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's something I've spoken about with uh, Greg Nuggles before, because a lot of his research is in uh, female athletes as well. Uh, it is, uh, I'm saying, it's a demographic. It is a huge demographic. It's 50% of the population that is hugely underrepresented in research. And I think it's fantastic that you're, you're looking at this because, you know, we have all of this research in fat loss and muscle gain in men and looking at on, on the female side of things, you know, some people might say, oh, there might not be a difference. We don't know that until, you know, we do the research and that's exactly what you're doing. So it's, it, it's great that we've got, you know, that kind of research coming in and answering questions that we simply didn't have the answer to beforehand. Um, if, if we move back to the, the, the study that your students yeah. were doing, so um, I think we got, we got to the point where you were going to tell us 
what they, each team had come up with. Yeah, the, the two teams, yeah. So the one team designed a rapid fat loss study that actually compared males against females. So if a male and a female both reduced their calories by 25% for two weeks, high protein, um, or actually probably more than 25%, I think it was 40%. Yeah, it was, they, they, their study was 40%. Do males lose more fat than females? Now, again, that gets a little bit dicey because females will have more fat to start with because of the fact that they're females, generally speaking. So we had to think through all of those options. And that when I had the judges come in, that was a large part of the discussion of, well, maybe we just base it on body fat percentage rather than just total fat mass. So we had a lot of good ideas. And that study proposal by my team was not the winner. The judges chose the other study, which is the one we ended up doing. And that study was a six-week study where we had two weeks of getting the subject's maintenance calories. So every subject spent two weeks learning how to track their macros if they didn't already. We gave them scales to take home, so they weighed themselves every day, and we figured out what their maintenance calories was. Then they went on a diet, a, a I would say a very uh, restrictive diet for two weeks. Again, we're trying to induce rapid fat loss. The difference was one group cut their calories by 50% the first week. Huge caloric deficit for one week, though. Then the second week, it was 25% of their calories. So at the end of the two weeks, we had an average of 37.5%, but it was more aggressive the first week, less aggressive the second week. The other group just did 37.5% the first week and 37.5% the second week. So... The, the real question was, can you be, even though it's only two weeks, can you be really aggressive one week and then let off a little bit the second week? Or is it better just to be consistent for the two weeks? So that was the research question. And we kept protein really high. This was at 2.2 grams per kg uh, for every subject. And when you cut calories by 50% or 37.5%, protein becomes very high um, in terms of the total calories. And in some subjects, it was literally all, all, literally almost, if not all of their allotted calories because it, we set that. Now, it's funny. We didn't recognize that problem on the front end. It wasn't until we started creating the diets. We thought, well, yeah, it'll be 60, 70%, but that's what we want to study. In some cases, it was nearly all of their calories. That is a, a lot of protein to be consuming. Um, so it's a, it, it's, a, it's a really good thing that it's a, a short study. Um, so, okay, just, just let me just kind of recap this. We've got one version uh, of this, one group who are doing a 50% reduction uh, for one week followed by a 25% reduction for the second week, uh, just basically to see is it easier for people to kind of go hard for one week and then kind of pull back in the reins a little bit. And then the, the other group was continuous kind of uh, reduction of the same average, yeah. which is seven and a half for two weeks. Um, that is a very, very, like, and I'm going to ask you this yourself. I know obviously you don't have results yet, but from, you know, with your own thoughts and your own experience, which group do you think would perform better? I don't think there'll be any difference because it was the same amount of time and 
it's the same caloric reduction. So I, I don't expect there to be a difference. Now, which one would I prefer? I would prefer to go hard for a week and then let off for a week. That's what I would prefer. Um, we had about, I want to say around 30 people start. And so about 10 of them quit, which isn't surprising because it's pretty aggressive. So, and now we have to look at, okay, did, did all of the people quit in the 50% group or was it half and half? I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but that's something we'll have to report. So oh, go on. I just wanted to say the team that lost, the agreement was that they would come in and then just help with the winning team's design. So all of my team now is helping with the current design. So that's how we, that was the agreement on the front end. And it's the, the culture we have is really good. There's not, there's not, you know, they were disappointed obviously, but there wasn't any legitimate hard feelings. <laughs> um, I should hope not because it's really hard to work with a team where, you know, half of the team hates the other half. Um, uh, uh, what do, I think the reason I asked the question about which which you th uh, sorry which of the two interventions you thought would work better was because so if if we think about diets and sustainability obviously if everybody's following the exact same calories and they're following their recommended calories to a T we're not going to see a change in in the outcome but if we think and I think this goes back to your you know what you mentioned about your philosophy about dieting if we go to a real life scenario. And you, you, you partially answered this with your, with your own, uh, you know, when you said you prefer the go hard at the beginning and go easy. I think potentially that might be a very, very useful approach for a lot of people because it, it you know, willpower is, is not something that we have in infinite supply. It's a finite resource and people can only hold out for so long. So if somebody can go hard, like really hard for a week and then they know that the next week things are going to ease up and then they know the next week, you know, they're, they're going back to normal. That does sound a lot more sustainable um i'm just wondering with these um and this might be a silly question but when you analyze these will you be doing like an intent to treat analysis or will it be a, a protocol analysis where how are you going to <laughs> i'm glad you asked that um traditionally i've never done an intent to treat analysis i've always done per protocol and um just to explain what that is a, a per protocol only cares about the people that finished the study. There's no attention given to the people that started the study and that quit. So if you count those people that, that quit at some point, then you have something, the, the concept of intention to treat. So my philosophy, and remember, I'm, I'm a lazy guy at heart. So I would say, I don't care about the intent. If you quit, that doesn't do anything for me. I want to know what happens if you actually follow the protocol. So I say all of that, but my lab, and I need to credit my research coordinator, Madeline Siedler, who's, again, she's going to be studying with Dr. Tinsley. She has convinced me on our diet break study, the one that she coordinated in females that we're going to do, which Dr. Trexler is now doing, we will be doing an intention to treat and a per protocol approach. Now the focus will be on the per protocol because that's what I think is relevant. Um, and, and you have to appreciate, I'm not an exercise psychologist. I'm a physiologist. So my approach is here's the plan. If you follow the plan, this is what you can expect to happen as a group average. If you can't follow the plan, well, then I don't know what to, you know, that's, that's not for me. That's just not my interest. But 
you ask the question, we're going to be doing both from here on out. I know I I really really like that because I I think you know when you look at the per protocol analysis, like you said, it lets you know if somebody sticks to this plan, does it work, and you can say yes or no, and. It also gives you a bit of a, an indication of, let's say, some of the mechanisms that might be, be behind why something works. But then, you know, it's always good, I just think, to have that intense treat analysis because then you can say, let's say, if we put this into a, a real-world scenario, how many people are actually going to be able to do it? And I, I really, really like that. You know, you're, you're going to be doing both of those as well. Um, one, one other thing that I found absolutely fascinating about, you know, this competition that you, you organized was uh, you decided to, to get the, the design of the study judged by a panel of, I'm, I'm going to say in inverted commas, external examiners. Um, yeah. Would you tell, tell us a little bit, who did you have on this, uh, on this judging panel? So I'm going to try to remember, but the, the names were Sohi Lee, Astrid Naranja, which you've had her on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Lauren Conlon was supposed to be, and she's a former student of mine. She's a great physique coach. Uh, she had to work that day. She had a commitment, so she couldn't do it. I had James Longstrom, who was a former student of mine. Paul Revelia, a world-class physique coach. Holly Baxter, Lane Norton, and Dr. Rob Wildman. And while I mentioned Dr. Wildman's name, they um, – he didn't, yes, they, he works for Dimatize. They actually donated protein to help the subjects get their, um, their, their protein intake. So I want to thank Dimatize for supporting my research. So those were, I think we had, uh, let's see, I had, I think it was seven judges. Um, Astrid, James, Paul, Sohi, Lane, Holly. Yeah, um, six, I think there was one more. Six or seven judges, yes. And two of them were remote judges. So he, Lee, and Astrid weren't in in the area. So that is quite a, a dream team of uh, of experts to get involved. Um, and like I think I, I said this to you earlier, it must be incredibly motivating for your students to to know that you know something that they are working on is is going to be reviewed by you know some incredible names in the industry like that. Um, what, what what was their reaction initially when you you told them that this this the judging panel? I'm sure they were happy. Um, so I'm very fortunate because uh, Lane Norton, um, Holly Baxter, uh, Paul Revelia, they all live right by my university. So they're all local. Um, James Longstrom is local. Dr. Rob Wildman flew in to judge. And of course, so he and Astrid, and um, they did it um, remotely. And Lauren Conlon also lives close. So it's not rare for them to to visit the lab. So they'll, you know, they'll stop by and, and say hello or get a workout in my lab. So it's, it's a, I guess you'd call it a good perk if you like that part of the, the profession to, to go to our program because, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to meet with them at some point. Just, just for, for anybody who's listening and who's been considering a master's program, um, I think you've got a, another great <laughs> reason to, to work with uh, Dr. Campbell right there. Um, yeah, thank you. Dr. Campbell, like we 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 could talk about like the science of fat loss and like your research is is extensive and there are so many different aspects of it that I I want to get into but just I, I'm very very conscious of your time but before we we kind of get close to finishing up I do want to ask you one question and and I know it it, it may seem a little bit tough initially but 
Are there any major questions in that you would like to answer when it comes to fat loss right now? Um, and I know that there, there could be like a million things that are coming to your head um, at, at this very moment, but things that you are, are particularly eager to answer at the moment. And then do you have any idea how you might go about designing a study to, to answer those right now? So the, the one thing that's intriguing to me is, and, and the reason it's intriguing is because I'm aware of about four or five studies when people eat a lot of protein and when they increase their food intake, when it's only protein sources, they tend to lose more fat. And I don't understand that because I've always been taught if you increase your calories, you're going to gain weight. And again, I know of about three, four different studies. One of them was from my lab. We published this study in um, um, aspiring female physique athletes about in 2018. One was a high group or high protein group. One was a low protein group. The group getting high protein, they actually were ingesting 2.5 grams per kg. They were eating about 300 more calories per day every day. They lost fat even though they increase their calories. So how does that happen? Well, NEAT is always an answer that's thrown out there. We didn't measure NEAT, so I, I don't know. Uh, Dr. Antonio has done two different studies with really high protein intakes. Uh, one of them, there was fat loss. The other one, they didn't gain any fat. And that data said they were eating, it was nearly 800 calories more, all from protein. Um, Dr. Mike Roberts from Auburn University did a protein supplementation study. Their subjects lost fat when they increased protein. So there's something about increasing calories. Now, the, I think the key is it, it has to be solely from protein that it may actually cause more fat loss. So I'd like to design a study around that. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe those are anomalies, but maybe not. I, I, I think that's particularly fascinating because like, I, I know in some of your own research, you, you've seen that. Uh, I, I'm personally fascinated with overfeeding studies in general, um, not just on protein, but like things like uh, fat and carbs and, and sugars. And, and my, my fascination with them is probably morbid because I'm, I'm interested in seeing some of the, the, the metabolic problems that, that happen because of those. But I think it is absolutely fascinating to that there are, there are studies that have shown that protein does seem to in induce fat loss in some people. And yeah, man, if you could come up with um, a study to look at why that's happening, I think that would be answering a, a really, really pertinent question, um, you know, in, in the world of, of physique sports. So yeah, that's a, that's a very, very interesting one to, to, to answer. Um, uh, Dr. Campbell, you've been so generous with your time and, this has been an absolutely enlightening conversation and I would absolutely love to have you back on um, again. Um, ju just for anybody uh, who's not already following you, uh, if people want to learn more about you, if they, if they want, want to follow you on social, how can they go about doing that? So I'm only on one place, which is Instagram, and my, my um, username is at Bill Campbell, PhD. Yeah, and I try to be pretty active on that medium, but that's the, that, at this point, that's the only thing I do. And you are. And, and if anybody is, is not following Dr. Campbell right now, I highly recommend getting over to it. He puts out some fantastic content, great questions um, on his Instagram very, very regularly. 
and they're all questions that people will want to to know the answers to. And I really, really like the format that you use. Um, so, Dr. Campbell, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the amazing research that you're you're doing right now. And um, hopefully, uh, everything will resolve with uh, the Corona situation, and you'll be back in your lab in no time. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, have a great evening, and uh, I'll be talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.